I'm really tired of seeing conservatives attack the welfare state and attack the people on welfare as parasites. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty Losers, to another episode of Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about, yes, the ideas of liberty. How wonderful. We're going to do it again here in episode 219, which means you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 219. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. Find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a libertarian blogger whose work can be found at convergentinterest.liberty.me. His work has also been featured at antiwar.com, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and even the radical progressive financial blog, nakedcapitalism.com. He's also been featured, of course, on a little-known website known as lionsofliberty.com. We've had many conversations over the years on the now-defunct Daily Paul and popular Liberty websites, so we are now forced to converse here in podcast form. I am pleased to welcome back to the program... Mr. Seamusine Riley. Seamusine, are you ready to roar? Yeah. Roar. Uh, Seamusine, you know, this show was kind of actually prompted by an email from you. Uh, We hadn't actually talked in a couple months, but uh, the subject only said out of the Navy this week. And you asked me if you want to do a podcast because you've got some interesting news to share. And obviously that is uh, your departure from the Navy. So why is this a positive news for you? Uh, You spent, I believe, a decade in the Navy. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit less than a decade, and it is positive news for many reasons. I had been wrestling for a long time, and this is just since January, so I had even done a podcast with you before I got out. Obviously, there were more questions that I was dealing with, how to make a transition. Should I go the route that some of your latest guests have been taking, which is that of a conscious objector, or should I just try and serve my time the best that I could. And a lot of questions about how I was going to take care of my family and these types of things. And it was really a struggle. But uh, about a year ago, I was resolved that I was going to hang up my hat. And we put the pieces together. My wife and I put all the pieces together. And it's been really, really great. The last four months, I've been a free man. So what were your biggest, I guess, issues while you were in the Navy that you began to struggle with that, that made you get to that point where you knew you wanted to depart? Was it really moral issues that started to creep in for you, or was it really just kind of dealing with the bureaucracy of the whole thing? Well, see, that's a really interesting question because, to be honest, I think – well, I don't know. It was both, but they happened separately. So I didn't really come into the ideas of liberty – until just after the 2012 Ron Paul campaign. I think we even talked about it. Uh, Although I I always had libertarian leanings, but I always accepted the premise that national security, along with the enforcement of voluntary contracts and the provision of a sound currency, were legitimate functions of the state. And within a few months of my awakening, I really started to come to terms with the fact that I didn't believe that anymore. And so at that point, I probably was committed to getting out. I just didn't know it 
And I didn't know how I was going to do it because let me tell you from someone who spent that many years in the Navy, it's a scary thing to leave, to try and make another life for yourself. And I've got three children. My wife hadn't worked for the entire amount of time that I was in the Navy. And so we didn't know how we were going to do it. And it turns out it's really not scary at all. You know, especially if you just commit yourself. It's kind of a scary thing for many people that not even just people that are in the Navy or in the military, but I feel like so many people get trapped into whatever job they have and then they become so wedded to it because it becomes very frightening to think about trying something different or trying something new. I mean, I can't tell you how many people in life I know that are just miserable at their jobs and have been complaining about it for years. But at some point I'm thinking, I mean, no one's holding a gun to your head here. Like I understand the economic implications that no one just wants to walk away from their job. But at some point when it's been years and years, you got to start thinking like, okay, I can at least begin a process process of thinking about other ways that I can earn a living and do things. And and like you said, it's not impossible. It's not even necessarily that hard if you just think about it. So what kind of methods have you been using to sort of to get into some other areas of income? Because I know this is probably something that a lot of people think about, whether they're in the military and wondering what they're going to do afterwards or whether they're just stuck in a job they hate. Well, yeah. So for me, my wife actually picked up the slack. She said, you know what? You've worked all this time and you've supported us and there's no reason why I can't do that. And she's just done a fantastic job with taking care of us. She didn't have a degree and she didn't, you know, lacking the last 10 years of work experience, but she was able to get a part-time job at a hospital. And then she was previously a massage therapist. So she does that work on the side and she makes more than enough money for both of us. Of course, I do have an admonishment to make. I do go to college full time and the military is subsidizing that. So thanks taxpayers for the uh, 1500 bucks a month. That's the least they can do after uh, now 10 years of service, I suppose. After 10 years of subsidizing my life, they there can subsidize for another three. That's fine. I'm all right with that. <laughs> hey, if it helps you out, I mean, think about how much you personally sacrificed to be in the Navy. Well, you know, Mark, I would like to probably get into that a little later because sure. this has really been an issue for me for a long time is what's you know morally acceptable in terms of accepting subsidies from the state. And so I've had a really nuanced sort of development in the way that I conceive of that whole question. Here's my take on it. And it is kind of a difficult question at times, but there's a couple prongs to approach this by. But I mean, the one I would take with you in the case of, you know, maybe you don't think that the state should be providing the service necessarily or should certainly not have the monopoly on the service of what the Navy performs, whether it's defense or rescue at sea or various things like that. But, you know, I try to think of um, how things might play out in a, I guess, quote unquote, more free society. And we kind of touched on this stuff uh, the last time you were on the show. Of course, I'll link to that episode in the show notes, episode 139. I've got this stuff memorized. But I mean, we talked about how even in, in these like so, sort of ancient quote unquote anarchist societies, there were still and still would be in future free societies people coming together to provide certain services for whatever reason. Now, I think even in the uh, these free societies that don't have states in the way we think about them, the services that the Navy performs, and of course they wouldn't may necessarily be performed in the same way. They 
they might not be heading over to the same countries or the same parts of the world. They might stay more localized and more, you know, for legitimate defense purposes. But these services would still exist. And there may be legitimate things that the Navy does in its scope, even if we don't think that they're funded in the proper way. So I don't think it's morally wrong to even go work for the Navy. I mean, I think within that context, though, a lot of people that hold, you know, the beliefs about individual liberty are going to come into moral conflicts because of the way the Navy is actually used in our our modern reality. So I don't actually see anything wrong with liberty-minded people performing a service like that, you know, even with the knowledge that there might be some internal conflicts over it. And there's nothing wrong with receiving that compensation for it, even if we don't agree that that's how that compensation should occur, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a, a sound and valid view. I myself take a different approach And like I said, I want to get into that a little bit later. But just to go back, rewind a little bit, talking about the Navy and and performing legitimate functions. The other reason that you mentioned in the very beginning, which drove me out of the Navy, was the bureaucracy and basically the illegitimacy of everything that the Navy performs from top to bottom. And what I mean isn't that it's illegitimate for anyone to fund uh, military warships to do national defense or whatever. What I mean is looking at it from a Misesian perspective. <laughs> the entire structure of the military is completely infested with bureaucracy, as outlined by Mises in his book, Bureaucracy. The way that the military attempts to solve problems isn't just inefficient, ineffective, but it's completely trivial. And then often the problems are trivial. And the amount of money that I saw wasted, the amount of effort and energy that I saw wasted, or not even wasted, just, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. But misallocated. I mean, does it sort of add to the moral burden, I guess, when, okay, you can justify, you know, maybe your own salary in the Navy, but then when you get in there and you see all this waste, all this misallocation of resources, and maybe your actual salary part of that is, you know, a very small drop in the bucket. But when you see the grander picture, it, it might add to that sort of, I guess, moral weight. Is there any kind of truth to that? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I was, uh, involved in a lot of money and involved in a lot of decisions concerning great sums of money and just the way that they, so this is the way bureaucracy works. I I think a lot of people, you know, we do our, our due diligence. We watch Tom Woods, YouTube videos, and we learn economics. We listen to our lions of Liberty three days a week to like libertarians. (laughs) And so we have conceived the way that the state works. And oftentimes we don't really have it right. So the corruption that happens in the military, the military industrial complex, it's never greedy people who are just trying to scam, you know, the taxpayer and get their market share. That's not the way it works. It's because of the no profit and loss mechanism. And so what happens is, and this is at every single level, all the way up from my very first year as a seaman recruit, you know, at the lowest of the totem pole in my division, all the way up to working for higher level commands and working for, you know, admirals and captains and things like this. It's totally systemic. What you have is you have people in a peer group that are fighting over a, what the problem is and B how to solve it because there's no real trigger 
to say, this is a problem we need to solve. In the market, the loss is what triggers action. And the way that you determine whether or not your action was more or less efficient is whether or not you reconcile that loss and turn it into a profit. And so without that mechanism, there's no way to trigger action at any level. And so what you have is you have people fighting over what to do next because essentially we're all just sitting on our thumbs. And there's no way to determine what the best answer to that is except for the opinion of the next guy up. I mean, at best, it sounds like you guys are maybe making educated guesses <laughs> in the best case scenario. Well, I mean, no, but it's not. It's, they're not even educated guesses. Uneducated guesses? I mean, I could tell you that my last year, I was pretty much just an evangelist for the ideas of liberty to everyone that I came in contact with. Within the Navy or just in your personal life? I mean, how much did you talk about this stuff within your Navy service? Everyone knew exactly where I stood and exactly what I thought. And the reason that they knew is because they were so easy to talk to because I didn't have to go very far to show them the absurdity of what we were doing. Remember that meeting yesterday? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I worked with guys who worked on equipment and the equipment is 40, 50 years old. It's completely arbitrary and no use whatsoever. It had a use when it was developed. It doesn't have a use anymore. And I'm in a room full of guys to figure out how the hell we're going to deal with getting people competent in order to use this equipment and how we're going to use the limited resources we have to conduct all of this training. And it never even dawned on anyone in the room to say, hey, we don't even use this anymore. This is not functional. It doesn't serve a purpose. You know, why can't non-functional equipment that like everyone just knows doesn't serve a purpose? Why can't stuff like that? be kind of, you know, like a modern company that was maybe providing that service would not just have this useless equipment laying around, but what is the nature of bureaucracy, I guess, that fosters an environment where, you know, arbitrary, out-of-date equipment is just going to still be there? Well, it's because that arbitrary equipment doesn't cue anyone at the top. It doesn't serve as a trigger, you know? And so normally equipment, the arbitrary equipment that's non-functional and doesn't serve a purpose anymore would be a trigger. Hey, that's wasting money. We'll get rid of it. But because it doesn't do that, the people at the top just say, you know, I don't know, make it work. Come up with something, do something. They're not concerned with it. They're more concerned with what their boss is thinking. Is it really just um, a lack of accountability within the system? And then that's more the nature of any sort of bureaucracy more so than it is, you know, some sort of, like you mentioned, not really an insidious, you know, some sort of insidious plan from the top to be inefficient. Let's say it's a ship, right? And what the boss on the ship wants to do is he wants to make sure that he does everything that his boss wants him to do, which is get the ship here or perform this sort of function. He's not really concerned with the inner workings of the ship. And what they do in the military to try and combat that attitude is they come up with this mountain of checklists to make sure that you're doing everything in accordance with, because obviously without these checklists, no one's going to pay attention to it. And so then you end up spending all your time doing these checklists and it becomes a majority of what you do. And, you know, your boss or the boss's boss, he's concerned with making sure that you get a good grade on your checklist. And so... What happens is you got to make sure that it's functional. You got to make sure that that equipment works. It's on the checklist. We got to do it, right? And so no one ever says, hey, maybe it's a good idea to rewrite this checklist. 
no one ever says, hey, maybe it's a good idea to get rid of this piece of equipment or get rid of this job that doesn't serve a purpose anymore or maybe, you know, served a purpose back in World War II but doesn't serve one now because their boss doesn't want to hear, oh, we can't do this. Their boss wants to hear, yeah, sir, we got 100 on the checklist. Does it end up feeling like you're just sort of, you know, running in a hamster wheel while you're in the Navy at some point because you realize that you guys are going through many fruitless actions, through so many fruitless actions, checklists and all this stuff that just really serves no actual purpose to the overall mission or cause or, or whatever the it's supposed to be anyway. Uh, I mean, is that really what kind of plays into your desire just to get the hell out of there at some point? Well, so for me, once I became awake to, you know, sound economics and I, you know, kind of, I used to get upset at what I saw. And I would see even after I learned economics and I really applied it to what I was seeing in the military, I would look around and everyone would be banging their head against the wall saying, man, I just don't understand why we're doing it this way. It's dumb. It just makes no sense. It's wasting all this effort. And I mean, don't get me wrong. People aren't just doing nothing. They're running themselves ragged. But what they're accomplishing seems very arbitrary and they're really upset about it. And it was when I awoke to the fact that the problem is systemic. It doesn't go away. This is the way it is. That's when I was able to really kind of come to terms with it. And yeah, it's a great segue into the ideas of liberty is, (laughs) hey, you know what we're doing? Isn't that funny? And then they look at me. Oh, my God, I just don't understand. And yeah. That's because it's the way it is. And then you hand them human action and say, get back to me in three months <laughs> <laughs> or three years, depending on how much free time you have. Right. I want to be very clear about that. It's not because people are just sitting pretty watching movies when things need to be done. People are really working hard and they're really stressed out. It's just it's all for naught. And so that was that was probably one of the biggest things for me was just, I can't do it. I can't do this, man. I can't do it. How did you, did your term just end? Is that how you got out or did you have to force the issue in any way? No, I just waited. So I was really lucky when you're in the Navy, you rotate sea, you know, you spend some time out at sea and then you, you spend some time on shore. And I was lucky that I, I had a job where I could pretty much just kind of divorce myself from what was going on. I did my arbitrary functions every day, but I didn't have to, uh, I wasn't in a position where I had to face moral dilemmas. And so I was kind of happy about that. And I just wrote it out, you know, spent some time, bought myself a house, settled my kids and some nice schools and just waited for my time to be up. Now, Shane Machine, we're going to touch on this subject of moral dilemmas a little bit more in a minute. But first, I needed to help my listeners out there with a potential dilemma they might be having with their health care by telling them about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I'm a freelancer, and I purchased my own health insurance, and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing, and as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. 
our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-6849. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Right, well, I'm glad at least one set of moral dilemmas is over for you. But like you mentioned a little bit earlier, I mean, you think there may be some sort of moral dilemma with, you know, maybe not only just taking money for your Navy service, but maybe with taking the money you're currently taking for your college education. So how do you sort of parse that out? What's your take on that? This is a really important subject for me. And it kind of ties into something else that I've been dealing with lately, which is, you know, we have a Bernie Sanders campaign. And so every time I open up any sort of social media feed, I've got a flood of Bernie Sanders memes and videos that I I can't even force myself to watch of a bunch of people talking about how much they want free stuff. And free stuff is a problem. But if you look at it in terms of the amount of money that we spend, the amount of money that we print and what we do with it, you know, free stuff isn't what's destroying our economy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have that view of Bernie Sanders supporters that they just, quote unquote, want free stuff. But I think it's kind of more complicated than that, because in, in many ways, what Bernie Sanders is calling for, you know, for universal health care and, and education and all this stuff, it's in some ways it should be an expected reaction to an economy that is so crony capitalist, that is so, um, you know, sort of hindering for people to, to live on their own and create their own wealth that at some point you got to expect a backlash where people just feel they're screwed over. They might not have the right solutions, but they're going to call to get things that they feel that they should get when they're in a system that they feel just so shut out from and, and that so favors a certain class of people. Well, right. And then they look at examples around the world. And this is one thing, too, that libertarians often get wrong. You know, we say, well, if, if you have this free health care, then health care is going to be destroyed. Well, but then they say, well, what about the Scandinavian countries? And we have all these arguments to fire back at them. And we have all these articles written by free market economists saying, well, no, what you really think about those societies, that's really not true. But, you know, for all its faults, I've got a lot of friends in Europe. I mean, I've got a ton of friends in Europe and from the Scandinavian countries in particular, and they're happy with the health care they get, you know? And so... When the progressives argue that, well, you know, you're just building a straw man, it's really hard to say, no, I'm not. This really is going to happen if it is working somewhere. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is okay. And and that's my issue with utilitarian arguments in general, because you can find quote unquote case studies where just about any program, quote unquote, works or helps a certain amount of people. I mean, I have been a huge critic of Obamacare. It hurts me, but I recognize it does help people. And we can't just sit around pretending that these programs, we might think they're morally wrong. We might know they're inefficient, but we can't act like there aren't human beings that they help. And we have to be prepared to address that argument in some way. How would they be helped without this program that is actually helping some people? Right, exactly. And so our inclination, people who believe in the market, we look at things like Venezuela and we say, well, look, you see, you see what socialism's done. And they say, well, that's not really socialism. Just like here in America, when, when, you know, progressives blame capitalism, we go, whoa, 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 that's not really capitalism. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really important for me and it's become really important 
to really try and see the issues from the perspective of an opposing ideology. And I've come to some really fascinating conclusions about that, or at least I've accepted some insights that I wasn't really prepared for. So, you know, for one, yeah, get over it. The social healthcare in the Scandinavian countries generally works. Okay, there are people who are being helped. And what's the trade-off? Well, the real question is, why does it work? Why does it work there? And the answer is because, or at least from what I've found, is the answer is because they're a smaller state and because they don't have the regulations that we have to deal with. And that's really what destroys the economy. And it's, it's the same with education. It's the same with every sector of the economy. So if you take healthcare, for instance, what's the problem with free healthcare? Well, free healthcare, it costs money, but we print billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and we dump it into the military industrial complex. And that doesn't seem to be really hurting us too much. I'm talking about it in a practical way on a day-to-day basis, right? So maybe the spending isn't the first problem. So what is it about the free healthcare that's the problem then? It's the prohibition of doctors to make money outside of a free healthcare system, right? It's the prohibition of people to seek medical attention from people who aren't licensed as a doctor or to pay outside of the system. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and it's that kind of thing, those kind of regulations that eventually lead to calls for certain solutions, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's regulating the healthcare industry. But ironically, it's that initial regulation that prohibits so many people from trading their services freely that creates the conditions that then call for further regulation. That's exactly right. And, you know, you can apply the same logic to the welfare state. You know, I'm really tired of seeing conservatives attack the welfare state and attack the people on welfare as parasites. Drives me crazy, too. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's immoral and they're taking money from the taxpayers and it's a waste of money. But why do they need welfare? People didn't wake up one day and all of a sudden there was all these poor people in the country and we had to deal with it with a welfare state. What actually happened was we destroyed jobs, minimum wage, all sorts of regulations that prohibit employment, that prohibit entrepreneurship, business zoning laws, red tape, occupational licensing. And so no one's got jobs. And that's why there was a clamoring in the 70s for someone like Lyndon Johnson to come take care of it or, you know, late 60s or, or whatever. But it wasn't that people just woke up and felt like they were getting the shaft. They had been getting the shaft for 40 years before that from labor unions, special interests, regulating them out of a job. And so welfare is a necessary result of all of the destruction of the economy that happened in the previous 40 years. And if you got rid of the welfare state today, those jobs still wouldn't be there. Now, there might be a clamoring for them to repeal the other regulations. But if you you got repeal in one hand, and free money in, in the other, what are you going to decide? Who are you going to vote for? You know, so. Well, I know what I'm going to vote for, but it's probably not the same thing that a lot of other people are going <laughs> to vote for. I've been listening to uh, Lucy Staggerwald and Sheldon Richmond on their uh, Liberty.me podcast, and she's made the point that uh, none of the above is a good option, or nobody, nobody 2016. Write in nobody. These options are not good enough for me. Well, especially if uh, the libertarians end up putting up who I think they're going to end up putting up, uh, I might actually, I might feel that way as well. So we will see. 
could I get a, a more sly non-endorsement in? But uh, by the time this airs, we'll already know who the, that nominee is. So uh, and we're going to kind of do a little time warp here for everybody. Well, Seamus, I know we could go talking about these issues for hours and hours and hours, and uh, maybe we will over the course of the next few years. Uh, I'd love to have you on as a regular or semi-regular guest. I really do appreciate your insights, and I'm happy that you are uh, a little more free, I guess, than you were at least uh, you know a few short months ago. Thanks a lot, Mark. Sure thing. And before I let you go, man, why don't you just take a minute once again? Uh, I mentioned a few things at the top there, but feel free to plug away and let people know where they can find your work. And you know, feel free to mention anything else you got coming up. Well, yeah, I have been writing or I had been writing at my blog at liberty.me, convergentinterest.liberty.me. And I took a break from that as I sort of made my transition out of the Navy. What I am doing right now, and it's it's a lot of work and I haven't really found the time to start to dedicate to it. But I'm going to be writing a book about, oh, nice. about my experience in the Navy and about my experience with the bureaucracy. I was really in the belly of the beast. And I think it would be an important read to sort of help illuminate what some of the issues are, you know. And really, yeah, that's, that's kind of where my head's at now. So expect to see that coming out at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, well, that'll give us another excuse to have you on the show for sure. So definitely keep us up to date on that. Shane Machine, it's been a blast, man. Take care. Talk to you later, man. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with the always insightful Shane Machine Riley. Be sure to check out his writing at convergentinterest.liberty.me. You can also find some of his work over at lionsofliberty.com, which is, of course, where you can find this very podcast published three days per week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We've got a brand new episode for you, including John Odermatt's weekly look at the criminal justice system with Felony Friday. That, of course, will be coming at you this coming Friday. John has been doing a tremendous job with that show. Really, almost 25 episodes in now, and he has really given us a diverse selection of guests who have really uncovered a lot of interesting aspects to the criminal justice system, stuff that I had never really even thought too deeply about before, stuff like false confessions, like DNA evidence, and how it can actually be used to falsely convict people at times. So there really are a lot of interesting aspects to this and John has done no shortage of work in trying to uncover very interesting aspects to the criminal justice system. So be sure to check that out this coming Friday. If you're enjoying all the programming we're giving you here at Lions of Liberty, be sure to support us in many, many ways. You can, of course, shop through our Amazon affiliate link, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. That's an easy way to help us out. Send a little money our way to help keep the lights on without costing you a dime more than you would normally spend on the same products that you would already buy through Amazon. So be sure to check that out. Of course, you can also share the program. Share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors. Tell them about this crazy liberty idea and tell them that there's a great show where we have conversations about it and shoot them over to Lions of Liberty. Just sharing it with one person. If everybody does this, we'll double our listenership next week. It's that simple. You can also, of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button if you don't already over at iTunes, over in the Stitcher radio app, and be sure to go and give us a five-star rating and a great review in those platforms. It's little stuff like that that really helps us grow the show and get it out to more people and continue to advance these ideas of liberty, which of course is our mission here at Lions of Liberty to advance this conversation. Again, folks, stay tuned once again this Friday for John Odermatt's Felony Friday. And until next time, live long and live free.